Please stand now for the reading of God's holy word in Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. Galatians 4, 12 through 20. Hear now the God-breathed and infallible word of God. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you receive me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated, and let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you again for the privilege to come and to hear your holy word, talk to us to read it, to ponder it, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our understanding of this passage, that these words that are uh, ancient words and yet living words would come and speak to us, your people, today. We ask this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, as we return to Galatians this morning, brothers and sisters, we come to the most personal portion of this letter. This is a letter written by a man who knew these people, many of them perhaps even by name, in Galatia. He had been there. He had ministered to them. And so when we come to a letter like Galatians, even though it is filled with much doctrinal instruction, we ought not to treat it like a textbook. Paul did not write a book called Justification 101 and then release it to the masses whom he did not know through some publisher. He did not write a book called Christian Liberty 101 just to put out there to this unknown market, this audience that was out there. This, rather, is a personal letter to God's people, instructing them, exhorting them, warning them, encouraging them in what they needed to hear. It would be something like if we had one of the pastors in our presbytery in the CPC, let's say that they had been with us for two or three years and they knew most of you by name at that point, Let's say they were to write a letter to our church, and we stood up here on a Sunday and we read that letter. Well, that letter would come with a personal force and a relevance, and it it would be something that we would receive in a special way, because it wouldn't be some impersonal thing. It would be somebody that we know, and hopefully somebody that we know loves us, cares for us. And so it is with Paul's letter, Paul had personally preached the gospel in the Galatian churches. He had spent time in people's homes. He probably knew many of them by name. And so Paul is writing here in a a particularly personal way to them at this point. He 
he sort of breaks off somewhat from his doctrinal instruction that he's expositing these things about the law of God and justification and the work of Jesus. He, and he wants to speak to them directly and to remind them and to wake them up to what is happening and to remind them of his love and his concern for them. So this particular section of Galatians is very helpful for us, I think, to understand what I would call is the relational component of teaching. When we teach others the faith, it is not meant to be this impersonal and abstract thing. It is, it is not meant to be that way. It is meant to be in the context of relationship that we teach the word to one another. And there's much here for pastors to learn in Paul's approach, and there's much here for all of God's people to learn about personal ministry to one another. That's particularly what we'll give some focus to in Paul's words. And that's why I've titled this message, The Heart of a Pastor. Because Paul's heart comes through in these words. And yes, he is frustrated, he's perplexed, he's concerned. But he loves God's people. I think that's very clear in what he writes. And so Paul's, Paul's heart bleeding through in these words should affect our hearts as we think about personal ministry to one another, as we interact with one another, we share the word. What is our heart for one another? And I was struck here by Paul's personal love and commitment for the good of Christ's flock. Paul cared about them. And it is certainly important for us as pastors to see these, these examples of, first of all, Christ, but also the under-shepherds like the apostles who loved God's flock. May it be that we as pastors love you all, love the flock of Jesus Christ, and we certainly find ways daily in which we fall short of that. We were commenting before we began the service uh, that we are always on the edge of constantly seeing our insufficiency for this work. Who is sufficient for these things? And Paul's answer, of course, the implied answer is nobody except that the Holy Spirit enables us to do something for the people of God. So there are three particular uh, divisions of this passage that we will look at today. And they all fall under the heading of the faithful pastor. The first is that the faithful pastor reminds. The faithful pastor reminds. Number two is the faithful pastor speaks the truth, like Paul did. And then the third is the aim of a faithful pastor, or the goal of a faithful pastor. And the goal, or the aim, is that Christ would be formed in God's people. That was Paul's aim in his ministry. So we begin with his reminders. That's how Paul begins verse 12 through 15, as he reminds the Galatians about certain things. And kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, we need reminders about God's blessings, lest we forget them. We need reminding. I said we need reminding of the things in the Apostles' Creed. We need reminders about God's blessings. We need reminders about our relationships, too. And Paul is particularly reminding them about his relationship with them and what that had been like in the past. We are prone to forget. We are prone to wander. And so reminders of what God has done in our lives is so needful. And we need this in the case of relationships, too, because sometimes we experience relational breakdown. Relationships uh, fray, they dissolve, they, they distance, and it's important at times to remind ourselves, where was our relationship before? What, what has happened? That was the case with Paul. His relationship with the Galatians was breaking down, it seems. 
He seems aware of enough information uh, about how they were responding to Paul to know that something is very wrong here. And perhaps you've been in that place where you, you cared for someone, you ministered to someone over a period of years, perhaps you poured yourself out sacrificially for them, you gave of your time, maybe you gave of your money, and you, you loved this person or these, this, these people, and then it's a shock and a disappointment when suddenly they don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. They don't want to hear from you, they don't want to receive from you. Paul was experiencing something like that. The the gospel that he had delivered to them, the Galatians were turning away from it. They they didn't want to hear from Paul anymore. They had new teachers. They had new pastors. And so Paul reminds them in verses 12 through 15. Let's see what he reminds them about. He says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now talk about a close relationship that they had had, right? Paul had had ministered the gospel, and he had ministered in the context of affliction. We don't know what his particular affliction was. Uh, Some have suggested that because of the language of plucking out eyes, that maybe Paul had an eye problem, and that's why he refers to them plucking their eyes out. And I think we can't know that for sure. It may just be a proverbial expression for how much they loved him. They would have just given a body part for him if necessary, because they cared so much for Paul. And in the ancient world, there was a lot of despising of people with physical afflictions. You can read in some of the Greek literature how people would would spit upon people with disabilities and other kinds of afflictions. And and Paul says, you didn't do that to me. You cared for me. You received me, even though I was maybe disfigured or suffering with some chronic illness and I was trying to preach the gospel to you. You received me, and not just in a, a general way, but you received me as an angel of God And even more than that, as Christ Jesus himself. What a a close relationship they had had. To receive someone as you would receive Christ is to receive someone in in the, the very way that you should if they're coming to minister to you. And they had so loved Paul, they would have given up for him. They would have sacrificed for him, but not anymore. Something has happened. Something's gotten in the way of that. They're, They're not interested in that kind of relationship with Paul. There's a dramatic turn of events that has taken place, and he, Paul wants them to see, don't you remember our love for one another? That was a blessing of God, that they had had this close relationship in the past. They needed to not forget what God had, God had given to them and their relationship. They needed to remember that Paul had preached the gospel faithfully to them. Why, why were they turning on him now? Not only does Paul remind them of their past relationship together, but he also reminds them of their blessings. And when he talks about the blessings here, he doesn't exactly tell us what blessings he has in mind. I would suggest that I believe that the blessing, he says, where was the blessing you enjoyed, refers to the blessings of the gospel they had received. The joy that was theirs when they had heard the glad tidings about Jesus Christ and they had received it with faith and the Holy Spirit had come and ministered to them confidence and assurance and joy and the truth of adoption. They had gotten all of these things 
And Paul is saying, where are those blessings that you enjoyed? It's as if they're gone. Because you're turning to these other people. Paul had said in Galatians that one of the things that was affecting the Galatians was that they were being disturbed. They were being harassed by these false teachers. They were being thrown into confusion. Galatians 1, 6 through 7, this is what he says about it. He says, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Back when we were in those verses, I was explaining how the word trouble you is actually the imagery of a, of a storm-tossed sea with waves going back and forth. And that's what had happened to their souls. This, this false teaching had come, and they had once been settled like a placid sea of truth. But now with the false teaching coming in, everything was, was confusing and perplexing, and there was doubts and there was questions about whether God really was favorable to them. Whether Jesus really had saved them from their sins fully, they doubted whether they had done enough in order to be in good favor with God. And so they were confused by all of these things, and maybe they're now thinking, Paul is not a faithful messenger. We can't trust Paul. He didn't tell us anything about circumcision and these other rituals. He said that we didn't need to do this, but these other people say that we do. Who are we to receive from? And so Paul is saying, don't you remember the blessings that you had received? Don't you remember the truth of the gospel and all that had come from that? Do not forget what you have received, he says. As I said earlier in other messages, the Galatians were suffering from gospel amnesia. They, they weren't able to recall accurately what they had received from Paul and Barnabas and perhaps other faithful teachers. And so Paul says, do not forget what I have given to you. And so this is one of the first ways we see Paul's heart as a pastor is he reminds, he wants them to recall what had happened. He wants to recall relationship. He wants to recall the truth of the gospel. And so that is the first way in which Paul's heart comes out. Secondly, we see that a faithful pastor speaks the truth. Paul asks this question of them in verse 16. He says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? How do you explain the common phenomenon of someone who once loved their pastor within weeks completely rejects that pastor and has, wants to have nothing to do with them? What, how do we explain that phenomenon? Of course, there can be a variety of reasons for that. Sometimes pastors can do foolish and sinful things. They can break down the relationship they have with Christ's people. That They need to deal with that. That can take place. But that was not the case with Paul. Paul had not lapsed in terms of his faithfulness to the Galatians. He had not lapsed in preaching falsehood to them. He had not lapsed in treating them wrongly. Paul had taught them the truth. And he was bringing the truth before them once again. Nothing had changed about Paul's message or life during that time. He had been steadfast in giving the same Gospel, But what had happened was that the Galatians had turned to other teachers, teachers that pandered to their flesh, and they didn't want to hear Paul anymore. Isn't it a remarkable thing that telling someone the truth can create a hostile relationship? 
Of course, it shouldn't surprise us. Sometimes people do not want to hear the truth, and so they turn away from it. Sometimes the implications of truth are not pleasing to them. And I've argued before that during our time in Galatians that the false teaching of the Judaizers did appeal to their flesh. It was very attractive teaching for them. Even though it was disturbing on one hand, it was also attractive to their fleshly interests. We, we saw earlier that the false teaching appealed to the Galatians' pride, they got to be part of the in-club. There was this special club, which they were currently excluded from, and the club had said, if you do these things, you'll be in. And they said, great, we'll do those things, and then we'll be in. So that there was a prideful component to the false teaching. We also saw that the Galatians were struggling with the fear of man because the Judaizers were given to the fear of man. It says that they did not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ's sake. That's why they wanted to be circumcised. So fear of man was a driver away from receiving the truth. That pulled them away. And then thirdly, I think the false teaching appealed to their self-righteousness. Paul says as much. He says, they want to be circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. They want to be boasters. This is what they're excited about. And so these are the kinds of things that were pulling the Galatians away. And so Paul is he's shouting the truth at them in love. He's trying to remind them of these things. And he's asking them now, what has happened? I, have I become your enemy? I'm, I'm telling you the truth. You may not like the truth, but that's exactly what you need to hear. And it's, it's certainly the case. Paul was very blunt, has been very blunt in this letter. He opened the letter saying, I'm astonished that you are so quickly leaving the true gospel. He says, my breath is taken away, in essence, by what you're doing. He said in chapter 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Have you ever tried to call somebody a fool? How do they often respond? You say, you're, you're acting like a fool. How do people respond to that? It's hard to say such things. Sometimes it's necessary. And to say you've been bewitched. You are under a spell. You are under the delusion of false teaching. Again, not not something that is attractive for people to hear. Now there are times in which any of us ministering the word to one another, whether you're a pastor or not, you need to apply the word of God with much directness. In love. Now, if we're not motivated by love, then the word is going to be hampered. It's not going to come through rightly. Our flesh is going to mess it up. But if we can speak the word in love, with directness, with honesty, with clarity, at the right time, then we should indeed uh, be open not only to saying hard words in truth and in love, but receiving them as well. Calvin put it this way. He said, if a, if a person scolds us vehemently and gives us good counsel, seeking to deliver us from some evil or another, and we cannot bear it, we are assuredly battling against God. It's pretty strong. He says, if they scold you vehemently, we're thinking, is that, is that delivered in love? It can be. It could be a scolding in love. It's possible. Yes, we bring the word with gentleness. We, we bring it according to the need of the hearer and the need of the hour. But it's difficult to do this. If you've received hard words or if you've delivered them, it is difficult, isn't it? Proverbs 27.6 speaks to how we should receive the wounding, the faithful wounding of a friend. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
So what the proverb sets forth for us is, here's how enemies act, and here's how faithful friends act. And it's saying that it's possible that someone who's really your enemy will just kiss you. Everything will be really good. It will feel really good. And it'll appear that they like you, they might flatter you in a deceitful way, they'll tell you nice things, but they may not really be out for the good of your soul. That was the case with the false brothers in, in Galatia. They, they were giving the kisses of an enemy to the Galatians. Paul says as much, he exposes it this way, he says in Galatians 2.4, he says, this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. So that's definitely an enemy uh, if they're doing that. But then Paul says that's not how they were presenting themselves, was it? They weren't saying, they didn't stand up in the Galatian churches and say, we have come to take away your liberty in Christ. They didn't say that. No, they courted the Galatians. You know what courting involves? It's this, this, this coming together and trying to build a relationship. There's a lot of kindness and you know, nice, nice words, nice gestures, gifts going on. Galatians 4.17, that's what Paul says that the false brethren were doing to them. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. And so the Galatians could look at these false brethren and they could say, hey, these are nice, these are nice men. They're, they're saying nice things to us. They have a lot of nice uh, ideas. Uh, they have some uh, promises about how good things will be if we follow them. But Paul says they're not up to any good. They're out to harm you. They're excluding you from their club so that you'll make much of them. So indeed, the kisses of an enemy were flowing quite nicely in the Galatian churches. These men were looking to be praised and to be honored, and so they would flatter the Galatians so that they could be flattered back. So the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You don't want those. Even if they feel good, if they're deceitful, you don't want them. So Galatians 6.13 says, here was, what was their motivation? They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They wanted to boast. They wanted to have reason for pride. That was what they were after. So you don't want that situation. You want to be able to discern between the kisses of an enemy and the faithful wounds of a friend. And Paul was faithfully wounding the Galatians as he writes this letter. These were wounds that probably hurt the Galatians. It, it would hurt to hear the words, you are acting like a fool, you are bewitched. But they were faithful wounds. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, we love others by telling them the truth, even when it is hard. Now let's consider the importance of this for, for us today. What happens when someone comes to you and they seek to inflict faithful wounds upon you out of love, for your good, delivered in love. How do you respond to that? You're going to need to prayerfully consider the difference between a faithful wound and an unfaithful wound. <laughs> a wound that is delivered out of contempt or, or malice from someone. That can happen, of course. 
or somebody can deliver a wound that's not true. They don't, they don't have the right facts about you as they bring the wound. However, in that process of distinguishing between a faithful wound and an unfaithful wound, do not immediately jump to the conclusion that it is an unfaithful wound. And I say that because I believe our natural tendency is to jump to the conclusion that it is an unfaithful wound. We might bring two to five seconds of analysis to the the wound and say it's not faithful. But I would suggest that the word analysis is not appropriate uh, for anything that takes two to five seconds. Uh, You need to give it more thought than that. When When you have heard hard words, I would urge each of us, whenever you hear hard words, whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's in personal interaction with one another, one another, do not do the five-second analysis on it to draw your conclusion. Take the wounding, consider it for some time, bring it to the Lord in prayer, perhaps get counsel from others to ascertain the truth of it. Humbly and prayerfully consider the hard word, lest you turn on somebody that is your friend and treat them as an enemy, which was what was happening with Paul. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul's heart was not to ridicule the Galatians. It was not to make fun of them. It was not to condemn them. It was to restore them, to recover them to the truth, to to help them from going the wrong path. The hard words were needful for that. This is, in fact, one of the essential marks of a faithful shepherd. A faithful shepherd speaks the truth of God in season and out of season. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a pastor who keeps you as comfortable as possible on your train ride to hell? Or would you rather have a pastor that preaches the hard words to you so that you will be the one who seeks out the true way of eternal life and the way to the heavenly city? Which one would you rather have? That's why Paul, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. He warns Timothy about what's going to happen in his job uh, preaching the gospel, being an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead and at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul gives Timothy the heads up. He says, your job is going to get very hard. Expect it. You will have seasons where people in season are lapping up the word with great excitement. They're receiving it. They love it. Things seem to be going well. And then perhaps a few months later or years later, you're going to have a lot of people unhappy with you, Timothy, if you keep preaching that word faithfully. There will come a time they will not endure it, Paul says. And he says, okay, in light of that, be faithful, endure affliction, keep going. Don't get your eyes off the ball. Preach the word. And so it is then, as we hear the faithful wounding of the word of God, the faithful wounding of a friend delivering the word of God, may it be that we humbly consider it, we receive it, lest we turn on one another, lest we become enemies of one another when we are seeking to do one another good. 
Now the third aspect is the aim of a faithful pastor in verses 19 through 20. This final section of our passage illustrates the goal that, that Paul had, the longing that he had for the Galatians. This is, was his desire for them, was that Christ would be formed in them. And children, this is the third point in your notes. We'll talk about this, this doctrine here, but Christians are those who are alive and become more and more like Jesus. We'll talk about the Christ-formed-in-you language here in a moment. Christians are those who are alive and become more and more like Jesus. That's point three. Now listen to Paul's words in verses 19 through 20. Listen to how he expresses his longing for the people of God. My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Now what a picture Paul chose for his longing for the Galatians. He says, I am in labor again. He's saying, you're putting me through labor a second time because I was already there and I delivered the gospel and there was new births taking place through the work of the Holy Spirit and now you're departing and now I've got to bring the message again and now I'm going through labor again. It's very painful. But I'm longing that Christ would be formed in you. Now, women might object to the use of pregnancy and labor illustrations as used by men, since the objection is that men really do not understand what this is like. And it is a weighty objection. I I understand that. And yes, Paul did not have personal experience of actual labor pains. And my wife asked me, did he ever even witness a birth? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure. But despite that objection that ladies often bring to men using such illustrations, I believe it is a particularly valuable illustration to speak to the heart of this man for the people of God. And while I have not experienced labor, I have now witnessed five labors, having five children, and so I was trying to draw together, what what are the key points that you can observe from that? And my wife told me to be careful at this point, so I checked the list with her before I bring these to you to make sure they're accurate. And she said these were accurate, so I feel like I'm on good ground to say these things about what labor is like to connect to Paul's illustration. First, pregnant mothers love their babies very much. Though they have suffered much to carry these children, they love them very deeply. So that's the first observation about pregnancy and labor. Secondly, moms in labor are extremely desirous to see those children born. not sure if that's an understatement, but... They are really committed to seeing the labor process through to the end. There's a commitment to that. Thirdly, though labor is difficult and painful beyond perhaps many other, if not all other human experiences physically, the outcome of that labor having been completed is a great joy when that child comes safely into their arms and is received. So those are a few observations. Now, if we bring that to the example of Paul, I believe Paul loves the Galatians very much. He is so eager that Christ would be formed in them. He is committed to seeing that process through as a faithful pastor, and he will find great joy when that takes place. Paul wanted them to know how much he cared about them. And what I think we can observe is that Paul is not a disaffected pastor that just doesn't care about the situation. You can't say that you're in labor pains for someone, and if you really mean it, you really do care, if you're going to use such an illustration. 
Paul writes with a passionate and loving concern for the Galatians. He didn't just wash his hands of the whole situation. He could have, he could have heard the bad news going on in Galatia, and he could have just thrown up his hands and said, I told them the truth. Oh, well. Too bad if they get co-opted by a false gospel. I did my duty. I don't need to do anything else. Shrugged his shoulders. Not cared anymore. But no, Paul cares about these people. He's concerned for them. He loves them. You can put it in two simple words. Paul cares. And, and good pastors, loving pastors, they, they care about the well-being of Christ's flock. And I found this passage particularly needful for my own self-examination as, as one of the pastors in this church. I asked myself the question, do I love Christ's flock at Reformation with a fervent love, with a desire for their well-being? Do I sacrifice myself? Is this me? I have to confess I do not love you all as I should. Any of us as, as pastors in this, this congregation would have to say the same, and we are struck at times with ways in which we, we didn't love. This ought to be the, the, the measure of a pastor who's, of course, growing in the likeness of Christ, is that we love the people of God more deeply, just as Paul did. And likewise, for all of us, in the context of the church, we need to have a concern for our brother's soul. We should not have the Cain response, am I my brother's keeper? That was Cain's response. He had killed his brother. He said, am I my brother's keeper? I I don't know what happened to him. I don't care what happened to him. And we could be that disaffected in terms of our, our relationships with one another. We could just say, I don't know, I don't care. But is that the heart of Christ in us, to say such a thing? It's not. It's not the love that we should have, the concern we should have for one another. That's why James 5 says, if you see your brother wandering from the truth, you need to go and you need to recover him. You need to grab him. And that should be the heart desire of every single one of us in this church body, is that Christ would be formed in us. Christ formed in me. Christ formed in you. And so you will take some pains to to see that that goal fulfilled to the degree that you are given opportunity and you have relationship and, and there's ways in which you can minister. You want to see Christ formed in God's people, just as Paul did. Now, what does this language mean about Christ formed in you? He says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Here is such a valuable description of what a Christian is. Remember that we we learned earlier in Galatians that a Christian is one who is united to Jesus Christ. They have died and they are now alive in Christ. You're united to him in his death and resurrection. Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is the fundamental identity of the true Christian. They are alive with Christ. Christ is alive in them. Now this should be very obvious to us. If Jesus is alive and we are connected to him, then by definition, a Christian is someone who is alive. This is a basic fact. Christians are not dead people. Spiritually dead people. They're not dead. They are those who have been brought from a state of spiritual death into a state of resurrection life with Jesus Christ. There's a fundamental difference between those two things. 
And, with, and so therefore, if we have the life of Christ, then inevitably, Christ will be formed in us if we are united to him. That's going to happen. That is going to be worked out according to the purposes of God. Now, Henry Skugel is a, a Puritan writer from the 1600s. He wrote a, a valuable book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. It was the book that was probably very instrumental in George Whitfield's conversion, in fact. And in that book, uh, what Skugel is presenting is he wants us to see that true religion, or just call it true Christianity, is when somebody is alive by the work of God. It's, it's very basic for him. He says it's not these external things, it's not just rules, it's not just participation in an external society. It is life, the divine life of God in a person. Here's what he says about true religion. True religion is a union of the soul with God. It is a participation in the divine nature. It is the very image of God drawn upon the soul. In the apostles' words, it is Christ formed within us. In short, I do not know how the nature of religion can be more fully expressed than by calling it a divine life. And the reason it is important to understand Christianity in this way is because the New Testament over and over again presents Christians as those who are alive, connected to Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They can do things that dead people can't do. Skugel goes on to explain the implications of this. He says, religion may be defined by the word life because it is an inward, free, and self-moving principle. Those who make progress in it are not motivated by external forces, driven by threats, bribed by promises, or constrained by laws, but are powerfully inclined to that which is good, and they delight in its performance. The love that someone bears toward God and toward goodness comes not so much by virtue of a command to which they are responsive, but rather by a new nature in them, instructing them and prompting them in that direction." So to summarize what he's saying, he says, if you're alive, you're united to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to be a Christian. You're going to act like a Christian increasingly, and it's, it's not going to be fundamentally external threats, constraining laws that drive you. It will be the life that drives you. It would be like taking a skeleton and trying to get all of its limbs to move. Well, it wouldn't do anything unless we attach the skeleton together and we put all of these bars on it and use the bars to move the arms and the legs of the skeleton. Well, you could do that with dead people, spiritually dead people. You can make it look that way as if they're alive by enforcing all these things and requiring all these things and constraining all these things. But if they're not alive, then you're still going to have a dead person. And so Paul is saying when he says... I long for Christ to be formed in your soul. He's assuming that if they have received the gospel truly, they're alive. And therefore, he is eager that the, the very likeness of Jesus Christ becomes part of their, their new nature. It increasingly becomes who they are. To put it simply, they become more Christ-like. That is what we desire for one another. This should be the, the primary spiritual aim as we think about key goals in life. If you think about the key goals you have in any particular year or month, the first of those, outside of glorifying God, which of course glorifying God and this goal are really one and the same, is to become like Jesus Christ. That should be your goal. 
And what, it, what does it look like when we become more like Jesus Christ? Our love becomes more like his love, which is a love that never fails, a love that endures wrongs, a love that does not seek its own interests, and all the other things that 1 Corinthians 13 says. We begin to be more humble like Jesus was humble. We look to the interests of others. We, we count ourselves less significant than others. We sacrifice ourselves for others. Our speech also, it begins to have the fragrance of Jesus Christ because our words begin to flow with wisdom, with kindness, with power, and with truth because we're more like Christ. We speak like him. We are increasingly predisposed to do good to others and find ways in which to serve because we, we're like, we come like Jesus who says that he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we start to do that kind of thing. Not that we can be a ransom for one another, but we can definitely serve one another. We begin to, to love the things Jesus loves more and to hate the things that Jesus hates. We will love mercy and compassion and justice because Jesus loved those things. We will despise injustice. We will be turned off by unmerciful behavior and unforgiveness and unrighteous anger. We will turn away from these things. In short, in every way possible, we will become more like Jesus Christ. His resurrection life will be formed in us and we'll begin to look and talk just like he did. And so a good question for us to consider, brothers and sisters, is this. Is this my great desire in life, to become like Christ? I would, I would recommend that if you are a goal setter, if you have task lists, and if you're that kind of person, not that you have to be that uh, task-oriented as it relates to writing things down, I would urge you to make sure you put this on there, to become like Jesus Christ, uh, put that really very much at the top of, of the task list for any particular day is to be like Jesus today. Do your life priorities evidence that goal? Would, would somebody be able to say, yes, that, that definitely is that person's goal. They, they want to be like Christ. It's, it's evident in all the decisions they make, the things they prioritize. They want to have Christ formed in them. So in this passage, we have seen Paul's most personal words to his brethren in Galatia. We've observed his love. We've observed his commitment to their spiritual well-being. And he, he reminded them, he warns them with warm affection, even while he is perplexed and concerned. And so I believe, brothers and sisters, that these words stand as a model for ministry for us. How do we minister to one another, especially if somebody's going astray? What do we do? Paul shows us the way. We, we remind of God's past blessings. We remind of the gospel. We remind of relationship. We speak the truth even when it is difficult. And in all of it, we aim, we make it our aim in love to see Christ formed in another, to see Christ formed in us. And so let us ask God to create this kind of ministry within our congregation that the heart of Paul, which reflects the heart of Christ, would be our heart toward one another. Yes, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for this precious time spent in your word. Your word is a gift to us. It speaks with such power and relevance. And we ask now that you would create this kind of ministry in our, our congregation, that, that we as pastors would be faithful to this call, that we as, as brothers and sisters in Christ would lovingly speak the truth to one another, that we would aim
at one another's sanctification. We would aim for Christ formed in us, that, that we as a church would grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ, that all the joints and ligaments would come together and that, that the body would be built for the glory of the name of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.